Welcome, everybody. Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is definitively part of that effort. Uh, today, we've got a normal partner meeting. We're going to run through a bunch of conversations about the startup market, uh, the broader markets, et cetera. There's a couple of patterns and trends you're going to hear come up, uh, one of which is most salient is we're starting to see the same reorientation towards profits and KPIs in business fundamentals in public companies that we've already seen take hold in the early stage market. So you hear that in a few different segments today. I think that'll be interesting. Um, one thing I wanted to touch on that's not going to fit within the rest of the uh, partner meeting format today is a piece of content I caught last week. Um, I'm a big documentary nerd, history nerd. I'm into all things where I feel like I'm learning. Um, used to be embarrassed about that, but definitely just part of who I am. Uh, there is a segment that I think everyone should watch on Netflix, if you're a subscriber. There's a uh, series of mini documentaries called Explained. And Explained does like 20-minute topics on 20 minutes on a whole load of different topics. Season two has a really interesting um, segment. And it touched on something that I've always had feelings about and formulated my own opinions throughout my life. But it did a good job of crystallizing some of those insights and kind of bringing something more to a close and giving me an answer. The question it was addressing was whether animals are intelligent, right? There is this overarching confusion in our society about whether or not animals are sentient or not. Uh, and there's a little history behind this, which I'll share. Uh, but this documentary, this 20 minutes, makes a pretty compelling case showing you the scientific studies done with different animals so you can see what types of intelligence they really do have and don't have. Uh, and so I thought it was, you know, for me, very, it was an aha moment, something I'd probably been looking for for more than a, more than a decade. Uh, one interesting factoid, this is all hearsay from uh, one of Yuval Harari's books, is that humans actually used to go around worshiping most of the animals. We talk about going from kind of polytheism, having many gods, to monotheism with one god. Uh, what people were mostly worshiping were the animals in and around their lives. And as we moved into more of a domesticated animal situation where we were breeding animals and slaughtering them, uh, worshiping, worshiping them became a bit of a conundrum because you're killing your gods. And that, uh, Yuval argues, is one of the precursors to the birth of monotheism, an independent god that's not an animal around us. So our relationships with animals has really swung. Right, where I think if you surveyed a lot of people today, at least my experience, there would be very mixed results around whether people think they're sentience, whether they have real thought and feeling and emotions, or they're simply robotic like creatures that are on this earth for us to, you know, eat and consume however we want. Uh, the reason I bring all this back up is because I think the Netflix documentary kind of gives an answer to that. That uh will hopefully help people take that information and formulate some different perspectives. Hope you enjoy it. Mikey, I'm back at home. I know you're still out in Jackson Hole. How is it? It's lovely. Every day is better than the one before. The sun's it's shining like your now, dream place. Is, it's my dream place, yeah. Yeah. The sun's shining today, which is I alluded to, is not my preferred Jackson weather. But when it does shine, we can enjoy it every once in a while. So what do you got going on in Jackson? Are you jumping out of helicopters or? No, not this week. Uh, yesterday, we did a nice little sunset hike up uh, 
Glory Bowl, which is in Teton Pass. So some sunset skiing, which was a first for me. Never done that before. We got some good snow and uh, a new friend of mine took me up uh, for some for some fun laps, which was good, good, good times. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. What do you got for us this week? What's going on um, in the venture market? What's going on in this venture market? I'd say high level. It definitely feels like the market is starting to accelerate again. Uh, the pace of deals is increasing. Our pace of deal is certainly increasing. I think we committed to two deals last month. It looks like there might be another one or two this month, uh, both at the early stage. And I think even more interestingly, back at the growth stage. And I'd say it's kind of like early growth is the area where, where people are starting to write checks and get excited again. Call it the 150 to $250 million valuation range. And we're seeing the pace of deals there accelerate, term sheets come in, founders pricing rounds. They're at reasonable valuations. There's a good expectation of what returns will look like on these deals. And uh, it's pretty exciting. It kind of feels like that was quick. That's my reaction. Because I feel the same yeah. way. It's obvious that this, you know, we, we were fifth gear 18 months ago. The market crashed. It didn't go to zero. It went to third gear. And maybe it's an anomaly. It's too early to call it a data point or a trend, a trend yet. But yeah. feeling fourth, fifth gear again. And holy shit, yeah. that was quick. Is kind of my read on it for a market correction. If it if this is a pattern where it's actually going faster now and not just a January bump. Yeah, and we're we're seeing in the news headlines too. People are sort of like, "Where's the recession?" Uh, which yeah. is a little scary, if you ask me. Right? I mean, you you know, I think it's we're not we're not out of the woods by any means yet. Uh, we'll see what you know how the Fed continues to drive rates and and what the job market looks like, which continues to be quite strong. But uh, I think those two things in concert are, are a little scary because the Fed's indicated that they want to crush the job market, right? And slow wage growth and slow inflation. It's not really working, which uh, is, I guess, a good sign, but also a bad sign here. So uh, I'm not of the, of the mindset yet that we're out of the woods and everything's clear, but it is encouraging to see that at least capital allocators like ourselves are starting to get more comfortable putting money to work in the markets. And founders are getting more comfortable accepting the terms and the new reality of where businesses price and how to grow and scale them with good unit economics. I mean, I don't know if you saw Bob Iger was on CNBC yesterday, and it was very interesting to see a seasoned CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world talk about how they got over their skis on subscriber growth and how they were growing unprofitably for Disney Plus for a long time. And now they're shifting back. Yeah, they're shifting back to lowering expectations for subgrowth, making raising prices, improving unit economics. And it's like, wow, if, if Disney and Bob Iger can get caught up in this, in this, and then of course the third or fourth year first time founders are going to get caught up in this. So uh, the whole market is shifting. It's for the best. Expectations have come back down to reality and deals are getting done again. And you know this, but Chris's narrative on this market is that we actually might stick a soft landing or something like it. Yeah. So... Who knows? More time to come. Now, what's going on in the growth market? Because that's the area that was most decimated mm-hmm. when the market cratered. Uh, and I know you have a good announcement. We just did our, our first opportunity fund deal. Yeah, Do you want to uh, give us a scoop? Sure. Um, well, I'll start with the, the announcement. Uh, we did a first close on our opportunity fund one, which is a new vehicle that we've launched to follow on into uh, our most successful companies in our existing portfolios. So longstanding founder relationships, businesses that we've been involved in for two, three, four, five years at some, at some times. 
And uh, we did our first deal in a company called LeafLink, which is a B2B marketplace for the wholesale legal cannabis business. Very excited to back Ryan again uh, and invest in what we think is going to be uh, the largest technology player in the cannabis space. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a monster. I feel yeah. like it's a marketplace and they've already won it. So yeah, they, well, that's the, that's the belief now that that's what they can scale as, as new states continue to come online, like New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey in the next few months. And, and uh, that market continues to mature and you know, hopefully we move towards a, a better legal framework here in the U.S. as well. Cool. Yeah. Um, overall growth market, how, how are you feeling? Are you seeing deals evolve? What, what are you seeing in the, in the game? Yeah, as I, I slightly alluded to earlier, there is there was a while where anything kind of 150 to 250 or, or higher valuation was was sort of uh, dead in the water. The second anyone would, would come to market or start sniffing around, people just didn't want to take risk in that space. And most of those business models were too far upside down. And by upside down, again, I mean, unit economics didn't really make sense for fueling growth. Uh, and now we're starting to see those companies have been able to right size unit economics bring the business back into a place where growth is sustainable and they can actually put money in and out the other end comes better growth and grid unit economics. And uh, we're seeing the capital markets open back up for them. I think what's been encouraging is a lot of those rounds have not been mega rounds where you see companies raise $50 million and you know that would necessitate a two, necessitate a two three, $400 million valuation. They're raising 10 or 15 or 20 maybe. And that gives that lets the dilution be right size, the founder get the right economics themselves, investors get good ownership and valuations are reasonable. And it gives not only the cap table, but the founders and the employees the ability to exit the company at a reasonable price. Thank you, Mikey. Cool. Hello, Fong. Hey, Mark. How are you? Doing really well. So you're not going to be recording next week, right? You're, you're on the road? Uh, next week I'll be here. The week after that, I'll be on the road. I'm taking, uh, my husband and I are taking the whole family on a vacation to Uruguay and Buenos Aires. That's awesome. Have you been before? I've never been to South America before. I've traveled oh. all through the rest of the world, but never to South America. So we have friends who live in Uruguay. So I'm, you know, I, I feel like we'll be okay there. I'm a little nervous about taking the kids to, to, uh, BA just because I've never been, but it's not going to be easy with kids because nothing's easy with kids, as you said, but yeah, I've been at BA a few times. We had business down in Argentina. We used to have a dev shop with a pretty significant footprint down there. So I've been to Uruguay and Buenos Aires a bunch of times. Um, it's great. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, we haven't done a ton of international traveling since COVID, so I'm really excited to get back on track on that. It's amazing. Just pro tip, uh, sleep on the flight down the red eye, wake up refreshed and you're in business. Yeah, no time zone um, change, right? And so no it's time zone change. Yeah. The red eye is a gold. That's and it's a long, you know, red eye across the US is a nightmare because you've got like a six hour flight, you know, you don't get a full night's sleep. This is, uh, if I remember, it's 10 hours. Yeah, it's 10 hours. So get on, snooze it, wake up, brush your teeth, and start your day. Excited. So yeah, that setup. sounds great. It's better than the, the five hour, you know, San Francisco, New York red eye. Nightmare. It's a nightmare. Nightmare. Awesome. All right. What do you have for us this week? Well, Mark, so last week we started a conversation around the power of brand partnerships. You know, we talked about how they can be a great growth vehicle, how to choose a good partner and different ways to partner with other brands. Then I think it was you, Mark, who noted that landing partnerships with big brands can be daunting and difficult if you're a startup. 
So what I wanted to come back and talk about today is, you know, once you identify the companies you want to partner with, just how do you land these big partnerships as a startup? So the first step is to do your research. Learn about the brand's customers, their product, their messaging, uh, key strategic initiatives they're working on. Look at how they show up in different channels, in the press, social media, their advertising. And while you're doing this, triple confirm that they're the right fit for your brand. And then understand the landscape of their company. Who are the key players? Who are the decision decision makers? And figure out how you'll build relationships with them. So in doing that, start by leveraging your personal relationships and make sure you're tapping into all of your potential leads. So it's your network, your team's networks, and don't forget to leverage the relationships with agencies and influencers you work with. Those people have huge networks and can often be a great resource. So for example, when I was a founder, we worked and developed a close relationship with a fitness influencer who had done content for a ton of big wellness brands. She was able to introduce me to the influencer marketing contacts at those brands, who in turn connected me to to the partnership teams. So just try to get a connection within the company. Even if you can't get directly with the key players you've identified, connect with someone in the company who can make a personal intro to them. And then once you're in, try to find a champion within the team that um, and, and, and win them over. That should be someone who gets your vision, is excited about you, but is also senior enough to influence others and bring your partnership over the finish line. And then once you get a meeting with a potential partner, clearly define the unique benefits that you bring to the table and what advantages they can get out of a partnership with you. You know, that could be a little bit daunting, but, you know, in thinking about that, there are lots of reasons why a bigger brand might be, might want to work with a smaller brand. Maybe they want to show support for emerging brands, or maybe they're trying to reinvigorate their brand image. Maybe you reach an audience that they can't, or you can plug them into a conversation or a social topic that they can't have on their own. So using that information, pitch them ideas that are potentially beneficial with the goal of bringing something to life that only your two brands can uniquely do together. Make sure it meets their goals and complements their brands. And be a good listener. Understand what their vision for the partnership is so you can deliver on that. Once the partnership is underway, be ready to scale. So if it's if done right, partnerships with big brands can deliver significant growth in a short period, period of time. So ensure that you're able to handle the growth, that your website can handle the traffic, that your supply chain, production, inventory can support the increase in demand. And then lastly, be patient. So I've worked at big companies for a lot of my career, and I can tell you that things always take longer there than you expect, especially when you're used to working, working in a startup environment. There's just a ton of processes and decision makers to get through. So be patient. Don't get discouraged. Um, follow up with your contact, but you know, strike a balance between persistent and not annoying, which is, I think, great advice for a lot of different parts of your life. So anyway, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that's a terrific um, summary on that. You know, and uh, one thing that struck me is you talked about your channels into these relationships, and obviously there's service providers and everything else. Um, the elephant in the room, also your investors and the people who maybe you're advising or incubating your company. Yes. Are great partners. Forgot about those people. <laughs> yeah, that you should um, select based on their ability in some cases to open those doors. So yeah. uh, the whole cap table should be working for the benefit of the company. Exactly. Yeah, great, great idea. Very awesome. Enjoy Buenos Aires. You'll be fine. All right. And, thanks, uh, Mark. Thanks for your time. I'll report back. 
Bye. All right, Chris, you want to do your update? What do you got this week? Actually, before we jump into risky assets and markets, uh, let me just highlight one event that ha- happened this week that I think is more important than anything else. Uh, of course, we got the magnitude 7.8 earthquake in uh, southern Turkey and northern Syria. This morning, I, I saw the headline that the death toll has uh, now increased and surpassed 22,000. So, I um, ab- absolute tragedy. I it's, it hurts part of my soul every time I see a headline like this. Part of the reason is me personally. Um, I experienced an earthquake myself. This was back in 2008 in China. Not sure what was the headline here back then, but um, it was a magnitude 8.0 earthquake followed by a 7.9 um, in Sichuan, China that uh, uh, ultimately resulted in over 60,000 deaths. I was about a thousand miles away at the time and, and yet still oh felt the aftershock. Uh, I, I was in my dorm on a bunk bed uh, and I just remember waking up and the entire building was shaking. My bed was shaking and I remember hearing cracks in the wall and people uh, going down, uh, you know, rushing down the floors and trying to escape. And this is uh, 850 miles, almost a thousand miles away from the epicenter of, of the earthquake, earthquake at the time. So. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what it's like to be to be in the center of it. And my my heart goes out to to everyone, all everyone who's suffering at the moment, and and uh, and really really hoping that that um, people people can be as many people can be rescued as possible. To me, it's extremely sad because it's it's an infrastructure problem, right? It's you can't you can't predict natural disasters, but you know, there are certain things we can do uh, as humans is to, to make sure the infrastructure is in place. That's heavy. Um, grew up in LA, obviously um, had earthquakes kind of all the way through my childhood, but, yeah. you know, only in a really bad one would anyone die. And if they died, you know, if someone died, it was fewer, more people died in normal car accidents that day than the earthquakes because the infrastructure was so good. It could withstand the earthquakes. Exactly. Now having traveled a lot and seen you know, the, the building code mm. in other countries, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. And unfortunately, you know, I see this headline of 22,000 people. It's so big, you can't even process it. It's just a stat. It's like you just see it and kind of like check yeah. out. But as a parent, you know, if I can reduce it down to losing my kid, if I were in someone's shoes, it's, it's terrifying. So, yeah. Sure. Uh, echoing you know hearts out to those folks yeah um so yeah let's let's talk about the market a little bit this week i uh there's frankly not a lot has happened um but let's start with the aftermath of last week's drop data The, the 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 short of it is you know equity the equity market public markets uh Really, we're trading sideways all week, digesting the data, processing. Powell came out with a statement, uh, uh, you know, in the middle of it, so people were really patiently waiting. But ultimately, we ended slightly in the margin on the in the red. So equity sold off one percent this week, um, and, and a lot of it had to do with what we talked about with market participants pricing in a higher potential interest rate given the drop data, which could then translate into earnings and, and et cetera, et cetera. 
And one clear sign to me is, is uh, if you look at a two tens curve, this is the interest rate two year and 10 year curve. And you know how a lot of people have been talking about the inversion that's, you know, which has high correlation with historical downturns. And that inversion as of now is back to the historical lows. So we're at right around negative 83 basis point. And that's on the back of one of the strongest 10 year treasury auction that we've seen in memory. Just, just tells you, you know, people, a lot of market participants are still looking um, to at least hedge their portfolios against a potential downturn uh, and by buying safe, safe assets like 10-year treasuries and, and betting on uh, the Fed being eventually accommodative and coming back, come back, coming back down from higher interest rates. So, you know, it's a reminder. So, you know, equity, a lot of equity sort of market participants are buying auction are buying options on the upside and, and while the bond market participants are hedging themselves by by buying tenure treasuries and 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 selling front end two years so it, it's there's a lot of disagreements out there let's put it that way and and um we we it's very easy for market at this point to move one way or another and in a drastic fashion so volatility will still be sustained so that's that's sort of the where we're, where we're at at the moment. So mixed earnings results. Any major trends you take away from this? What does this mean? Yeah. So I I so let's talk about earnings for a second, and then we can talk about trends uh, from this. So this week is a continuation from last week. We've we've seen um, basically both beats and, and misses. Beats from the likes of uh, PepsiCo and, and Disney. And and misses from the likes of Lyft and Credit Suisse and other banks. So you know it's it's very messy uh, based on the results. But if you really sort of jump back and, and look at any trends that we can we can see here, well, I personally I see sort of two. One is that, uh, and this is one that I'm, I'm I definitely would want to monitor uh, going forward. It seems to me that market markets are are now finally really shifting their attention on prop, profit margins, the bottom line, as opposed to top line growth. I mean, using an example from, from Disney, Disney, Disney results obviously beat, um, came out, but at the same time, it reported less subscribers from Disney Plus. If you put this result in the context of maybe 2021, 2022, it's very easy to see that just because of less of subscribers and and potentially less revenue top line, this will result uh, in some very negative reaction from the from the equity market. Uh, but at the same time, of this less subscriber uh, data, you know, Disney also reported effectively higher subscription price increase and therefore higher margin and, and better bottom line, and market took it in incredibly well. So. I, I think this this trend can be broadly expanded to other companies um, where, again, the, the, the regime change here from sort of growth at all costs to maybe Nexus profitability at all costs. And I think that has, you know, takeaways and, 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 and implications for private markets as well, right? How, how investors are currently looking at, uh, uh, you know, how to allocate their capital. The parallel is real. With the early stage markets, obviously. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. 
The, and, and the second one maybe also has implications in, in private markets. I've talked about it's, you know, reading these earnings reports and statements and, and um, I'm sensing that there are more there are more references to the impact of the U.S. dollar than, let's say, in the past couple of quarters. Of course, uh, you know, 2022, big year for the dollar, dollar strengthening. Um, but, but but now, as I mentioned, you know, two weeks ago, we're on the reverse of that, right? We're, we're trying, the dollar's coming back down. And, and, and in fact, on the back of what we seen yesterday and day before where, uh, you know, Mexican Central Bank came out, uh, surprise market hiking more than, than, than expected, Japan doing similar things. And so all these are, you know, major currency pairs with US dollars, which means if, if these currencies are strengthening, the dollars will, 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 will be weakening. So the impact of dollar into earnings across all the companies, especially consumers with low margin, is going to be, in my opinion, very significant. And we're seeing companies referencing the dollar, uh, either the strength or the weakness of it and, the, and its impact more and more. Uh, so that's something that I think everyone should be watching uh, and then properly hedging in their own portfolio. Got it. Well, thanks for the update. And a reminder for everybody, Chris is a SEC-registered RIA, so nothing he has said should be misconstrued as investment advice. Yada, yada, yada. Great. Thank you, Mark. So we're ending on a bit of a heavy note, um, but the world has real problems. Uh, appreciating Chris bringing up the earthquake. Uh, and, you know, hearts and minds are going out to the folks out there and what they're dealing with. Um, Thanks for listening. We'll be back in next week.